Hello, everyone. Happy Wednesday. Um, it is Wednesday, right? I got that right. Yeah, all day, all day long. And, and okay, well, good. here, I don't know about other places. Good. Um, I hope you guys are doing well. Uh, today, we're going to be having a discussion on the tag argument. And in just a second, I'm going to let Steve introduce our guests and uh, tell you a little bit more about what that is if you don't know. Um, I'm just going to run through what we've got coming up for the next three days. Uh, tomorrow, Shannon and I will be here taking your calls. Um, we open it up to anyone that wants to call. Uh, we especially like people who disagree with us. So if you um, have a gripe with uh, Shannon or I, or um, you'd like to talk to us about um, anything like that, you can give us a call. The number for that is going to be 313-NONSEC1. That's 313-666-7371. And that will start at 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, on Friday, uh, Adam Kokish will be back with us. We're going to be talking about his um, – he's going on a um, – a three city tour and he's raising some um, funds for that to spread uh, libertarianism. So we're going to be talking to him about what's going on with that and why uh, a third party is a better choice. This election and it's coming up election. And then on Saturday, uh, Schrodinger's cat will be taking on mock earth, mock earth, as you know, from last Saturday was in the chat, um, really raising hell. So he's going to get his shot on Saturday. And that's all that I have, Steve. Well, first, uh, by the way, I, I wanted to do like broadcast my study, so I'm not using a green screen now. So this is actually my reading list that I've done, if anybody believes that. Um, so only because I, I didn't want to be outmatched by Dr. Malpass here. So anyways, yeah, we're going to be talking about that. I guess that you guys are going to have a discussion on the tag argument. Uh, we have Dr. Alex Malpass with us, who's a contemporary philosopher, a logistician. Um, I, I, I know where you're from. I know what school you're from, but I don't know if you want me to say, do you, do you want to like introduce yourself or where, what school you're at or you were at? Um, I don't think that's necessary, really. I mean, okay. <laughs> Just what, anything that you want to tell them about yourself then? Because I, I don't want to like, Give too much away about you um i don't know i i i have a phd in philosophy um uh i've been interested in transcendental arguments um and tag i guess uh i don't know i don't really think anything else is that necessary to be honest okay <laughs> um you want you want to promote your blog i guess i mean <laughs> i i don't care about any of that shit. okay no, problem, no worries okay I mean, that's I fine. Um, and we got Jay Dyer back with us. Uh, he was actually with us before you were having a conversation. I believe it was on like, I, I say, I, well, I don't want to say Satanism, but I guess numerology in Hollywood. Well, it, was, it, was, it was, it was my, it was my book. So there was a, we had a debate about the content of my book. So it was a great mm -hmm. chat. I had a good time with uh, Mr. Atheist. E Esoteric Hollywood. Is that what it was? Yeah, that was right. That was my, okay. my first book. Yeah. Awesome. So I'm, we're going to kind of just turn over to you guys because I, I don't know where in the directions you want to go for the tag. Um, so we're going to let you guys just do a free well, form. Um, can I, let, can I mention Jay, my back, yeah, yeah, background? Jay, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so basically I do Esoteric Hollywood um, book-wise. Uh, my TV show is Hollywood Decoded, which you can watch uh, on Gaia TV Network. It's also on Amazon Prime. And um, I do a lot of philosophy and film my graduate work was in analytical philosophy so i do have some familiarity with the topics that i think dr malpass is going to want to discuss 
Uh, and I've been a proponent of transcendental arguments for about 20 years. So it was something I put a lot of time into in my, my grad work. So my website's Jay's Analysis, and it kind of covers everything from geopolitics to conspiracy to Hollywoods to philosophy and theology. Awesome. Well, this is going to be like really interesting. I know a lot of people have been kind of like wanting this kind of discussion. I know a lot of people in the live chat, I can see their names now. Um, they're going to be listening with great intent. So I hope this actually goes very well. Um, I'm not, like I said, I'm not specific sure what your, your, your argument's going to be, but it's going to be kind of a free form. We just ask you don't talk over each other because if you do, it's going to be bad for the outside chat. Plus, I've noticed with Dr. Malpass, he's had a little bit of a lag, so just bear with it because um, he may not have actually stopped his argument, and I, I don't want there to be kind of any overlap. Okay, so, but Jay, do you want to like start us off, and then we can we kind of go from there? Yeah, that's fine. I'll, I'll try to keep it as concise and clear as possible. Um, so what I believe is that philosophy uh, essentially is a paradigm system and everybody has a philosophy. We all have a, a paradigm of beliefs. And I agree with kind of the traditional classification that a worldview is ethics, metaphysics and epistemology. And when we look at each of those branches of philosophy, we all, I believe, have presuppositions or assumptions. And so if we look back to Aristotle, Aristotle was one of the first people to propose a transcendental argument in his metaphysics. And he gave this as a, a form of argument that's kind of a meta argument for justifying the law of logic, laws of logic themselves. Now, this has a long history in philosophy, uh, different types of usages of transcendental arguments. And it's really from the time of, say, eighth century church fathers like John Damascus that we have really precise uh, attempts to use it for the existence of God. So that has a, a, an unknown history in Western theology where you get more of the Thomistic school. So I don't, I'm not a proponent of any of the Thomistic arguments or that school of philosophy or theology. I'm an Orthodox Christian, so Orthodox theology is very distinct from Thomism. So if you fast forward up into the modern era, the usage of Tom, uh, Thomist, or excuse me, transcendental arguments for God is more clear in the modern period because of the trek that philosophy took in the West where you have a lot of questioning of paradigms, questioning of language after, for, say, for, existence, uh, for example, Jean-Baptiste Vico, you get the questioning of linguistic philosophy. And then by the time of the Enlightenment with Hume, you get a radical skepticism. So the reason that Kant and Hume are important for the transcendental argument is not so much their philosophy as a whole, but rather the questions that they raise. So you'll hear a lot of times people who promote the transcendental argument who are schooled in this, they'll talk a lot about Hume, and that's not because we're Humean, but rather because we see Hume taking the kind of um, atheistic skeptical route to its more logical conclusions and ultimately saying that there's not really a justification, logically speaking, for induction. And if you follow the history of um, logical positivism, of naive empiricism, psychologism through the history of Western philosophy up to the modern times, you get basically William Van Orman Quine in Two Dogmas of Empiricism reaffirming and restating the central arguments of Hume that induction still doesn't have a rational justification. So that's just kind of a brief history of transcendental arguments, and they've entered into a more precise Christian apologetic, obviously, in the last century. But we see that as a reaction to the fact that philosophy became, after the Enlightenment, much more focused on postmodernism. It became much more radical, and it started questioning presuppositions and so transcendental arguments are essentially a response to those questionings of presuppositions, giving a different form of argument than a classical um, non-paradigmatic type of argument, you might say. 
So when questions get down to the level of basic paradigms, we believe this is one distinctive that we want to <clears throat> we want to be clear about uh, that arguments are ultimately circular. And so we we I wouldn't say that they're a fallacy. I do believe obviously circular arguments are a fallacy. But at the level of kind of paradigm questions, we would say we would argue that circularity is unavoidable. So the, the crux of it then is how the, the way that we get to God from all this is that basically I would say the argument that I would make, and I can't speak for, I'm not here to speak for Matt Slick or Dark Dawkins or any of those other people. I'm here to make the argument that I'm making, which is specifically that there's a whole host of transcendental types of things, preconditions for knowledge, preconditions for the possibility of metaphysics, preconditions for the possibility of ethics. And if we look at a lot of these different transcendentals, what we are left with is kind of a placeholder, and it's fine to talk about a placeholder, given the type of being that we describe God as, uh, namely that he's omniscient, omnipotent, he's invisible, right? He's not visibly seen, et cetera, et cetera. It, it seems to follow, I would argue, that the way that we would argue for that kind of a being is not the same way that we would argue for typical kinds of things like, does water boil at 100 degrees? Does, you know, does gravity function in this way? So because God is a unique kind of being, the, the type of argument that we're going to make for that kind of a God is more akin to something like how we would justify the laws of logic themselves or mathematical objects or entities, uh, things that are more abstract or conceptual in nature. And since God is more like that, I'm not saying he is equated to the laws of logic or that he is equated to numbers or number theory, but I'm saying that because he is more like that kind of a thing than just a phenomenal sense experience object, the kind of argument that we would do would be more of a transcendental type of argument. So basically the argument is just simply that when we look at the, the fact that the way that we justify the existence of the self uh, is as a transcendental category, I believe the way that we uh, justify the existence of the laws of logic, mathematical objects and entities, meaningful uh, statements and sentences uh, is through uh, transcendental presuppositions. Uh, the way that we justify the existence of time uh, and spatial relations is through uh, transcendental presuppositions. The way that we, justify the existence of the external world in philosophy would be through a transcendental presupposition. All of those things are transcendentals. And I would say that when we add all these up, when we have, when we have this ball of transcendental categories, the way that we would justify this big ball would be the fact that the Christian God actually does provide an excellent basis for that. And so we see then coherence from our perspective, right? Not saying that every single question is answered. I don't think any worldview can do that. But what we at least see is coherence in this system. And I would argue that the other systems that, say, presuppose uh, materialism or presuppose radical empiricism, psychologism, naive empiricism, positivism, those systems uh, at a very fundamental level completely contradict and don't even allow the possibility of logic, ethics, et cetera. So when we compare the two paradigms, that's how I, the argument is actually made, is that it's a paradigmatic level comparison of systems. Okay, um, thanks for that. So, I th there's a, there was a lot that you said there. So um, I'm just trying to pick what the right place to start this is. Given the way you described it, it sounds to me like an inference to the best explanation argument. So you're saying, take um, the explanation that my uh, let's say worldview um, provides for uh, various things like laws of logic, uh, morality, mm -hmm. I don't know, um, knowledge, uh, induction, whatever. Pick a bunch of things that need explaining. Um, and mm -hmm. what you're saying is that you're, you've got a candidate explanation for all of those things. And that if we compare that to 
other candidate explanations you think your uh, your position um it has i mean i'm not quite sure how we'd make the determine what what you think the mechanics are of the determination i mean is it that yours uh, has a better overall balance between uh, ontological commitments on the one hand you know uh, costs of the theory weighing up against theoretical virtues like explanatory power simplicity the uh, lack of ad hocness that type of thing so it sounds to me like it's an argument to explanation that you're offering does that seem right to you well typically uh again the like for example maybe the best way to answer this question would be i did listen to the debate that you or the discussion that you had with i think his name was darth dawkins and i'm not advocating darth dawkins but what i'm saying is that the what what i noticed from your responses in that hour two hour discussion was that i think that you were thinking about things um at the level of say just normative logical discourse um but what i'm saying is that i think that that the arguments i'm making are much broader they're much bigger because i'm i'm, I'm making an argument from a a more extreme paradigmatic level um so rather than it just being a debate about a specific say uh law of logic like oh well how do we know if uh, uh modus ponens is true how do we know if the law of identity is true um it's actually a more broad broad speaking mega argument and and it's it's going even further and it's saying not only does Christianity provide an explanation, but that it actually does provide uh, coherence. And so in terms of specific truth theories, I'm not advocating everything in terms of modern coherence theory, but it's more like that kind of a worldview, a coherence theory of truth or epistemic justification, et cetera, than it is um, the classical foundationalist model of justifying claims on the basis of say self-evident maxims. Like we, we would not say there's any self-evident maxims. So uh, if if you adopt the position, and I, I think you have to ultimately, that worldviews at the fundamental level are circular, then even if you if, if we were to take your where I think you're going with your objection, which is that, well, just because a position has explanatory power or because it can be inferred, it doesn't prove that it's true. That's correct when it's when it's a situation of um, normative uh, discourse or or. Uh, a, a simple law of logic, but the claim here is different because it's about paradigms as a whole, not just logic, which is, I would say, is just a branch or one aspect of reality and philosophy. I'm still sorry. I'm still trying to get a grip on what the form of the argument actually is, though, and maybe it would be helpful if you could state it as premises and a conclusion. Well, the argument, again, is that uh, if one accepts that there are transcendental preconditions, which some philosophers dispute that notion, I, I'm well aware of that. For example, a lot of say modern transcendental arguments are like linguistic uh, categories that Carl, Van, uh, Carl Otto Appel does work in. Um, other people at Cambridge do work in transcendental arguments related to logic and um, and some do ethics and, and linguistics. So, but I'm just trying to be clear that I'm not making that argument. There's the same, it's similar forms of argumentation. For example, if you look at Gerdell's incompleteness theorem, that's a mathematical version of a transcendental argument where it's appealing outside of itself to justify the system, right? He's, he's pointing out that all sets appeal outside of themselves. So I'm not saying that the argument I'm making is exactly the same in terms of content as what Gerdell's argument is. I'm making that type of an argument in a much more powerful way. So simply put, the argument is that if you don't presuppose uh, the the God of Orthodox Christianity, what you end up with is 
the impossibility of having any preconditions or any coherence or any possibility of logic, metaphysics, and ethics. Okay, good. That's helpful. So um, let's say, would it be fair to put it like this then? So if you don't, you said if you don't presuppose the God of Orthodox Christianity, then, um, then well, so what's the consequence of that? Then uh, logic and uh, these other preconditions, uh, these other elements of our experience would be um, what's it called? Unintelligible? Would that be the way to put it? The, the intelligibility? Yeah, correct. They, correct. Ultimately, they, the, they would lead to uh, uh, unintelligible conclusions. So that's not to say that a person who does not believe in Orthodox Christianity can't be a logician. It's not to say that a person who uh, doesn't accept the totality position that I'm outlining can't do science or can't do logic or math. That's, that's not what we're saying. But we're saying that in terms of overall consistency, that if if um, let's say if I had a materialistic paradigm uh, and I said, well, I don't accept your 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 Christian theism, uh, you know, I believe in, say, just rank materialism um, uh, and I still do logic. My response to that person would be, well, yeah, you can do it in your daily life, but actually the the justification for doing logic is itself actually impossible and incoherent if you were to be consistent with conflicting presuppositions. OK, OK, so. Um, I mean, I take it that, well, okay, that, so th it, I take it that you think that this argument is being similar in heritage to Kantian arguments, um, such that we find in the critique, like the, <coughs> the, for instance, where, or the it's aesthetic. Only, it's only, right, so it's only similar to Kant in the fact that the, the form of the argument is the same, just like the form of the argument is the same with Gerdell and incompleteness set theory arguments. But what's different with Kant is that uh, we don't psychologize it. We're not saying that the structures or the category, basically, if you want to make it simple, what Kant is saying about how the mind has transcendental preconditions that structure reality, we think that that's mm -hmm. the mistake of Kant in terms of humanizing it and psychologizing it. And it really, really would make more sense if he attributed that to the mind of God, basically. Okay, so, so just to be clear, and so what Kant's saying, I mean, because I'm presumably not, not everybody's read Kant, certainly right. I imagine not everybody right now will. So um, what Kant's doing in the critique, I mean, it's one of the most complicated and sort of pivotal books of, um, of, of philosophy in general, I guess, Western philosophy in general, um, probably right. the piece of philosophy in the Enlightenment. But what Kant is doing to something, so, I, so I'm going to not do justice to it in this brief summary, I'm just what I'm trying to say, but what Kant's up to, to some extent, is saying um, he he's responding to um, to skeptics who are making the claim that you couldn't know any synthetic truths a priori, right. basically. You couldn't know anything about the way that things are not analytic truths you can know sort of just simply the meanings of words how you know bachelors are all um unmarried men that's fair enough you don't need any experience as such to tell that that's true but um whether there are any uh, truths that are a priori that means before experience that are also synthetic which is um which is to say not true simply in virtue of the meanings of their words could there be any truths like that and can't says that there could be. And one of the examples that he gives is um, the structures. So he thinks that um, you can tell that we have to think of the world in terms of space and time and causality, right? 
Uh, those yep. are the right. those three that, those two arguments. And effectively, the the way that he gets there is by saying that with careful kind of exam phenomenological examination, really, is to say that you can just tell when you uh, evaluate how consciousness um, is unified together that if you didn't organize things in a spatio-temporal way that has causal relations built into it, that taking those elements out and seeing what's left of conscious experience uh, leaves you with a kind of a mess. It leaves you with a booming, buzzing confusion that doesn't have any order or coherence to it, right? So he thinks that we have to think of um, as if space and time were real and that causation was real. And so in that sense, it's, um, it's a truth about the way that things are. It's a um, synthetic truth. It's not just about the meanings of terms. And it's known a priori because you can just tell using your own reason and examining the makeup of your, the way that your mind works. Um, so that's a transcendental argument. But what that does is it says, um, unless we thought like this, unless consciousness was structured in this way, um, then the intelligibility of experience would become impossible. Now, I see some similarities right. is you're linking it to the intelligibility of experience and specifically intelligibility of things like logic and causation and blah, blah, right. blah, blah, blah. And you're saying that right. those things would intelligibly impossible if we didn't have this precondition. But instead of the, so I think what I'm lacking that I can see with Kant um, is I, we start off with uh, a claim about the way that we have to see the world. And then there's the phenomenological in, like inspection. That's the really right. hard stuff. Picking apart those bits and seeing why causation is required in order to see the world right. coherently. I'm still lacking clarity on is why is it that seeing the world um, with the belief that God exists it, it plays that role, structuring my experience in any way. Feels to me like I don't have that belief, um, but my experience is not a booming, bussing uh, confusion, right? So, I have perfectly coherent thoughts. And you even said, you know, you can be a logician and not have this belief. That makes it different right. for the Kantian. Is if you didn't have, a, for Kant anyway, I'm not saying he's right, right about this, but his is if you didn't structure things spatio-temporally and causally, you couldn't mm -hmm. have any experience at all. So that makes your argument slightly different. So, so there's two things there. One is I don't see the connection between belief in the orthodox God and coherence in the same way that we get from a Kantian argument. Um, and what was the second one? It's just popped up. I just said it, but I've already forgotten it. So maybe you can just reply as, as you can. Well, yeah. So uh, actually, that's a really great, a great question. I'm glad you asked that question. So and that helps to clarify how what what I'm arguing for is strictly speaking, not Kantianism. So I'm glad you went in that direction. So the first thing I would say in response is that um, if you read Kant's prolegomena to any future metaphysics, it's the it's the it's the work where he realizes the problem that Hume has raised, and basically he says that it, Hume has shown us that if we begin with sense experience, that we cannot any any more do metaphysics. So when he moves to the critique that you're talking about, he wants to give a justification for metaphysics. But what I do is I do I would respond by from my specific theological worldview. I'm going to do a presuppositional critique of Kant. And this is the same way that I would approach any of the philosophers. And the problem with Kant's presupposition is that it, it ends in psychologism. So Kant's divorce between the noumena and the phenomena means that he can never get to the external world. So for Kant, for example, to say that that minds are structured in the way that he thinks they are, he needs to be able to have access 
uh, empirically to other minds, but he's obviously not able to do that. Nobody is. We don't have empirical access to other people's experiences. So what I'm saying is that the the traditional critique of Kant, I would actually agree with. We we believe that Kantianism is flawed precisely because of the divide between the phenomenal and the noumenal, um, because of the fact, by the way, um, I should add that uh, if you read Husserl and the Logical Investigations, he actually did respond uh, to Kant's challenge of, of the fact that we can't have a synthetic a priori anymore. Uh, and Husserl gives multiple examples in his writings of things that actually are just logically speaking. I'm not, this doesn't really apply to God, but I'm just saying that technically speaking, uh, Kant has been re re replied to by Husserl. Uh, and Husserl gives the example of redness. Uh, you will never experience redness apart from some object having redness, which he argues, and I think it's a valid argument. He argues that that actually does satisfy Kant's challenge for uh, the lack of a synthetic a priori, but that's not really germane to my overall argument. My overall, overall argument is that I would actually agree with you that Kantianism itself does not prove God's existence in the way that I'm arguing for it. It's just that Kant did have insights when it came to uh, usages of various transcendental categories. And I would simply say that for Kant's position, if I was talking to Kant, I would say, hey, bro, you've got some good points there. But for your position to really work the way you're wanting it to work, you've got to have other things that you're missing. Namely, our our deity would actually solve things because, for example, uh, in the Christian worldview, there is a distinction between the external world and the individual and his his consciousness, which this is, again, you know, a historic problem in philosophy is how do we know there's an external world, this kind of stuff. Uh, if, if God created the world and if we are made in his image and we're distinct from animals and from the external world, then we avoid a lot of the, say, far eastern positions of Maya and, and that everything's illusory and everything's a projection of my mind, right? A lot of philosophies believe this. So again, what I what I would say is that there's actually a presuppositional critique that we would do of Kantianism to show that just because Kant's doing transcendental arguments, it doesn't mean that he's doing the kind of argumentation that we're doing. Just like with with Gerdel, even though Gerdel's using a transcendental argument, it's not the kind of argument that's it's not the the content of the argument is not the same as what I'm doing, even though the form of the argument is the same. And so when you were talking about a person doing logic who doesn't have my worldview. What, what I'm saying is that if you think back to your discussion that you had, for example, with Dark Dawkins, uh, if we talk about induction in nature, right, regularity in nature, which is actually absolutely necessary for the scientific method itself, the scientific net method presupposes things like logic, like regularity in nature. And as we said, from Hume all the way up to William Van Orman Quine, there's not a logical justification for induction itself. And so the, the, the solution, I would say, is that, well, if, if the world is created, in a in a way in which there's a god who providentially guides nature who has set up nature to oper operate in a providential way that does explain how there could be induction right that doesn't mean that when you don't believe that that you don't still on a day-to-day -day basis operate uh on the basis of induction you do but the question is rather a meta level question of well how could you if there is a way could it possibly be justified to believe in induction could there is there a way to justify meta logic is there a way to justify meta ethics so it's that's distinct. It's like another level of looking at the question rather than just kind of the ground level of, you know, this versus that your claim versus my claim, et cetera. OK, so um, again, I'm trying to pick between two different. Uh, let's see, which way do I want to go? All right. So I think, well, let's look at the problem of induction for a moment. Um, I guess, obviously, if you can say so if your solution to the problem of induction is to say, well, I mean, if there was a God that 
providentially be agreed certain regularities would obtain, then right. the question of whether or not there would be regularities wouldn't be so difficult to, to deal with. I think that's right. fair enough. On the other hand, it feels like if you're allowed to do that, then I could just say, well, if there just are regularities in nature, I mean, if you're allowed to make a kind of gross metaphysical assumption, um, right. then the problem of induction is not going to be a problem anymore because, well, right. that making those types of assumptions about the way the world works is what induction is saying you can't do. So if you're allowed to do that, that's, that short circuits the problem of induction. But it seems, well, it seems kind of trivial. If there are regularities in nature, then the laws, then the problem of induction goes away. So that doesn't feel very satisfying as a response to me to the problem of induction. Well, the problem of induction is a problem for anybody's worldview. Okay, so it's not something like unique to an empiricist or I mean, it's an issue that could be raised in anybody's belief system. And the specific philosophical debate, as I'm sure you're, you're aware, is was over the possibility of justifying it, right? So if you read Hume's writings, he kind of goes through all these possibilities and he, and he essentially comes to the conclusion that he doesn't believe there can be a logical epistemic justification for the belief in the regularity of nature. Um, and then, so there's debates obviously throughout the next several centuries, but most people tend to accept William Van Orman Quine's famous essay that the two dogmas of empiricism are still dogmas. So he was making the point in that essay and he's a, an empiricist. He's just saying, look, it still doesn't look like there's any way from basic sense experience to justify a claim about regularity in the future. It's not possible. So typically speaking, philosophers don't believe that there is an empirical, strictly logical justification for induction. Uh, and I would just say that for us in our worldview, it, it, it makes sense because there is regulatory nature because of divine providence. And I understand your objection. You're saying, well, yeah, but but if that's the way you're going to operate, you could basically just kind of bring in anything at any point where there's a problem. And that's not what we're saying, because uh, maybe I should have mentioned this kind of when I was opening up the discussion. But in our in my view, um, when we talk about things that are, say, uh, logical claims or when we talk about a metaphysical claim or, or even a claim about sense experience, I don't believe that claims operate outside of a paradigm of beliefs. So there's no such thing, in my view, as brute neutrality or brute factuality or that claims aren't theory laden. I believe all claims, even a simple claim like uh, something about a law of logic or something about the cat is on the mat in front of you and your sense experience, all claims of any nature, I believe, are theory laden. And they kind of necessarily do presuppose and entail a lot of other beliefs, even if the claim itself doesn't specify those beliefs. So real quickly to maybe answer your question is I would say, look, there's no such thing as making a claim that's say only about logic or only about ethics. If you make an ethical claim, I literally believe that you're also presupposing things about metaphysics and epistemology, even if you're not interested in dealing with them. I'm not saying you personally, but people theoretically, uh, even if you don't want to talk about metaphysics or, or, or epistemology, if you if you make an ethical claim, there is still implicit in that all kinds of presuppositions about metaphysics and epistemology, even though the, the specific do domain under which we're under, per, under under the immediate purview is ethics. So in response, okay. I'm saying that in response, I'm saying that that it's not like it's only a question about the regularity of nature, because the possibility of doing science isn't just about the regularity of nature. It also presupposes that a scientist has the, a self and a consciousness enabled to interact with an external world that's meaningful, that's separate from him, whereby he can do logical experiments that are based on 
uh, excuse me, he can do the scientific process based on logic. And I think Husserl has shown definitively in logical investigations that that the scientific method absolutely presupposes abstract logic. Um, then then we start to see that none of these things actually operates independently and on their own. They actually kind of necessitate all of these other categories uh, and transcendentals that I'm trying to say are all necessary. OK, good. So, um, I mean, I uh, agree with with plenty of what you're saying about the interrelatedness of um, our concepts. Right. And I don't awesome. think <laughs> most people don't. Think, but uh, That's awesome. I mean, um, I don't think that it's easy to draw those lines between the areas, but it seems weird to imagine that there are no lines between them at the same time. Well, I'm not saying there are, there um, are no lines. No, but so I agree with you in the sense that I think that there are lines between those areas. Um, I'm just not sure that I know what they are. Um, and anyway. Yeah, and I uh, wouldn't even claim there's a clear distinction at times between when something might be strictly epistemic or when, I mean, yeah, there's fuzzy areas on that. I agree. Okay, so, but to go back to induction, it feels, to, I, I'm not quite sure if, um, if you got what I was saying, because I think that, um, maybe this is just my fault. So the the problem of induction right is that um let's say you're um a scientist encountering some regularity right like you're doing an experiment and you're you're repeatedly getting the same results from your experiment in similar conditions right um and you might after a while start to say to yourself well here's a hypothesis right there's a law of nature which I've stumbled over, right? Which is that um, every time this happens, that thing happens, right? And that's the law, and that's what's going on. It's the explanation of the regularity that I seem to be observing here. Um, now, here's where the skeptic pops up, right? Because the skeptic can say, uh, well, maybe not, right? Not so fast. What you might have stumbled across is just a coincidence, right? So, like um, the turkey thinks that it gets fed every day up until Christmas, right? And thinks it's going to get fed tomorrow. So he hasn't stumbled across a law of nature, which is every day the farmer gives me. Food. It's just. I'm, I'm muted. It. Sorry. All good. So the turkey found uh, like conditions following circumstances, but he wasn't he wasn't stumbling across the law of nature, right? the causal structure that he was uh, He'd connected to. It was just a bunch of coincidences because he was wrong the next yeah. time he made that inference to being fed on Christmas Day. And Could you repeat that? You kind of you kind of cut out. Could you repeat the the, the example you gave? Yeah. Just to let you know, uh, real quick, uh, Doctor Mapass, when your dog barks, um, your mic drops down below the threshold, and so that's it's my fault. It's it's here, so I'm going to start. Mar it's it's my okay. Whenever, whatever dog it is, okay. I'll mute it when I'm not talking once it's not my dog <laughs> um okay so what i'm saying is um I, I, I let me start again then so you could be a scientist sitting in a lab doing some experiment and uh you're in like conditions you're finding like uh consequences right? So you do the measurement the same way every time it feels like you get the same result coming out the other end and you start to think to yourself hey maybe there's a my hypothesis is that what's going on there's a law of nature right there's a causal connection between uh, the the circumstances of the set of the experiment and the outcome, right? One's causing the other. I found a causal relation here, and then the skeptic pops up and says, "Hold on a minute, not so fast, right? This might just be a coincidence." 
And the analogy is like, so uh, the turkey who's getting fed every day throughout December up until Christmas Day, who assumes, hey, uh, every day I got fed up till now is a kind of causal relationship between, you know, the farmer coming out and pouring grain down in my food bowl, whatever it is. Um, so he thinks that's uh, stumbled across a causal relation too. But obviously, that's uh, he's wrong, right? Because there is no causal relation there. Because on Christmas Day, farmer comes out and wrings his neck, right? So the the idea is that the well, the scientist could always be in that situation, right? No matter how many observations he does, he can't really tell that he hasn't that what it looks like irregularity to him isn't just a coincidence, right? He can't really tell whether he's stumbled across a law of nature or not. That's the problem of induction. And the Christian answer that I'm hearing is that well, God can you know maintain nature in such a way that there are uh, regularities. I understand that as an answer, but what I, I'm satisfied with about it, apart from the fact that I could just make a similar metaphysical assumption, which is, well, maybe there are just regularities in nature, right? It's a kind of e equivalent um, metaphysical assumption. But it seems to me we're still in the same boat, in exactly the same epistemic boat that we were in prior to making that assumption. And here's the problem, right? Let's, let's imagine, let me grant you all of the premises of that argument. So your Christian worldview is true, God exists, God maintains regularities in nature. Um, all of the revelation that comes through, let's say, the, the Bible, the teachings of the church, blah, 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 any, any revelation you like. I'm assuming you don't believe God reveals personally by speaking in your head to you or whatever, right? Most Christians don't have that view of revelation. But assuming you have more or less standard view of revelation, um, it seems to me that God doesn't tell you uh, through revelation whether or not your experiment that you're doing is uh, a regularity or if it's just a coincidence, right? So if you, I don't know, if you go outside your house and step into the road without I looking, see. maybe that you never get run over, right? But you don't know whether that regularity is going to be continued in the future or whether it's going to be interrupted. So that the problem of induction still faces you. Even if I grant you all of the bits of your argument, you are still in exactly the same place when you're faced with a, something that looks like a regularity of not knowing whether it's a coincidence or an, in fact a causal law. So I don't see that it actually helps you with the problem of induction at all, even okay, if I grant you right. everything. That so, so the first thing I would say in response is that just because uh, we believe in theism, you are correct that it does not mean that you're going to automatically have a better result in your scientific experimentation. I, I fully grant that. And that wasn't the argument that I was trying to get across. Um, we all still, if we're doing experimentations based in the natural world, uh, it's always going to be fallible. But what I'm, what I'm trying to stress, I think, is that the problem of induction is not just a question about um, how do we know about when our scientific experiments are just coincidence and when they're not? It's much more than that. If you read Hume, and again, the hundreds of, of years of actually debate on this question, all the way up to Quine, the debate is actually about the logical justification, the epistemic justification of believing in the principle of regularity in nature. That's, that's specific and that's different from the, just the question of reliability in scientific experimentation and how do you know you're discovering a law or not. So it's, it's a specific question about logic and justification. And what I'm saying is that um, one thing I would say to you that might, that might help distinguish the argument I'm making from what you're saying is that I would say that different things are proven in different ways. So not everything is going to be proven in an empirical way. So for example, the scientific method itself, if we were to ask the question of how do we know that the scientific method is actually a thing or, or, a, or a conceptual model or system or tool that we can rely on and use, 
how do we logically justify believing in that itself? Now, you can't just say, well, because we do experiments and it works, because as Hume pointed out, that's kind of just sort of assuming the thing that that's being asked, right? So what happens is that the debate on this, this question becomes more fundamental. It becomes a question of a, 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 fundamental, a fundamental paradigmatic level question where we ask, how can we justify something that goes out of, of sense experience if we only limit our beliefs to what are confined to sense experience, right? So the empiricist tradition has this problem within it. And anybody who adopts naive empiricism as a, as a philosophy or a worldview or an approach to the external world ends up with a logical problem and an epistemic problem. Now, it may not affect their day-to-day -day scientific activities in terms of how successful their, their theories are, because theories are very, very precise, they're very niche, scientists spe uh, specialize in very uh, compartmentalized areas. But the philosophy of science is asking different questions. It's asking, again, meta-level questions, not questions of basic logic, not questions of basic empiricism, basic sense experience. It's asking meta-level questions about the justification of the possibilities of those things, right? So again, the kind of questions that Kant was raising appropriately, but in, in my view, not answering appropriately. Uh, and so again, in the same way, uh, I would say that if we look at something like a question of how do, uh, at what temperature does water boil, right? This is a basic kind of scientific experiment where we would engage in um, empiric empirical results, right? To, to determine, well, we have a lot of reliability that, you know, 99.9% .9 of the time, everywhere water seems to boil at, you know, this, this temperature, right? Um, but if we're asking a question about not specific sense experiences and the phenomena of experience, we're asking a more fundamental question of, well, how do we justify, can we justify, right? Some people don't think we can. Could, can we ask the question of how do we justify relying on the scientific method itself? It's a more fundamental meta-level question that Hume is asking, right? And it is a debate from Hume all the way up to Quine in the present day. And that the consensus of most empiricist philosophers, unless they become an idealist, which is what Kant did, Kant was a form of German idealism. Hegel, he goes into that German idealist tradition. So they go a route of idealism. I'm not an idealist, but I'm just saying that some philosophers have attempted to kind of grapple with these issues by going into the idealist slash Platonist school of thought. We don't believe that. We're not Platonists, but we're also not anti-science. We're not I don't believe that you, you can get away from doing science and, and experimentation. Um, I, I believe science is fully reconcilable to the Orthodox Christian worldview personally. So uh, what I'm saying is that different things are proven different ways. And so the kind of argument that I'm making or the way that we would go about justifying. And again, if, it, if we were to say, well, how could you justify something that's not empirical? I would say that the kind of argument that's going to be necessitated for the possibility of justifying that would be something more abstract. It's not going to be an argument that's the same type of argument of how we would prove things in the physical world, right? And you can't just respond by saying, well, yeah, but 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 until we see physical evidence of those things, we have no reason to believe that, that they exist. That's actually another uh, empiricist fallacy because the empiricist himself typically has to believe in things that he can't empirically justify, again, this problem of regularity, the scientific method itself, uh, conceptual realities, meanings behind words. These are all non-physical, non-empirical things that cannot be justified in the, the typical way of justification. So in the history of logic, all the way back to Aristotle and transcendental arguments, the only type of argument that you could give to justify something that fundamental, right, like the laws of logic. So when 
Aristotle's arguing with the sophists, the sophists are the, the, the classic skeptics, the classic uh, sophists, the classic relativists. They say, Aristotle, this is all well and good, but but how? what would you say to me, Aristotle, if I come to you and I deny the possibility uh, of the law of non-contradiction? And Aristotle responds by saying, when you engage in argument, you're assuming the laws of logic to begin with. And if you deny the law of non-contradiction, you're assuming the law of identity and the law of non-contradiction in its denial. So Aristotle gives that transcendental argument, which because it's at that level, if, if something is at that level and it's so fundamentally self-refuting at that circularity level, we would say that is a valid argument. I would say it's a valid argument. Now, some philosophers will dispute that. If they do, I would go down a different route of saying that I think you would be forced to adopting that position if you looked at the fact that you cannot justify. That's why we always go back to Hume, transcendental argument proponents. We always go back to Hume because we have to go back to pointing out that if you start with, say, the, the basic assumptions of all knowledge coming through sense experience, as a lot of people do, for example, um, there's no way to justify that belief itself in a strictly logical, formal way. It has to be assumed. And again, to my knowledge, every empiricist from Hume up to Quine has agreed with that on a strictly logical, formal basis. Okay, so uh, let's talk about Aristotle for a second then. So um, you made the claim there that Aristotle provides a transcendental justification for the law of non-contradiction, which um, is, is a view, I guess, but um, I would say that was a minority view for, for sure. Um, I think there are pretty good reasons that that's a minority view. Um, so I take it we're referring to Metaphysics Book 4? Um, famous... I mean, I don't have it in front of me, but off my top of my head, I have read the entire Metaphysics. It's either 4 or 7, going from memory, but it's specifically in the, it's a well-known passage where he's arguing with the sophists, and the sophists ask him to justify the law of non-contradiction, and he makes an argument from the possibility of the contrary, which is, which is a transcendental argument. Um, I, I am not so convinced that that's what's happening there. So uh, Metaphysics 4 is one of the bits of Aristotle I know quite well. Um, uh, I haven't read Metaphysics from cover to cover. I was just saying to Steve, okay. I, so, so any books. Well, let me, ask you a so, let me ask you a question before we go in that route. Um, do, do you understand that in our position, we believe that uh, a reductio at that level is a transcendental argument? It is a what he does is a reductio to the sophists, right? And he says that that the assumption of logic, or excuse me, to deny the laws of logic would still assume them, and you would be led to a denial of their very fundamental. And and by the way, this is it's, as far as you're the first person I've heard that doesn't believe this. As far as I know, any standard uh, treatment of the history of transcendental arguments will go back to to Aristotle's metaphysics. But um, if I even if even if I'm wrong, which I don't think I am, I, I'm I'm 95 percent sure going from memory because I took a lot of grad classes on Aristotle, um, and so we actually dealt with this this whole question. But uh, I'd be interested to hear where you where you how you you don't think that it is a transcendental argument. I mean, to be fair, scholars disagree. Right, it's an area where scholars disagree, just like uh, lots of Aristotle. Right, I mean, um, sure, there's three That's bits true. of Aristotle. There's three bits of Aristotle I have. Um, uh, good good knowledge on um this bit um the higher analytics in general categorical syllogism and the sea battle argument in uh, on interpretation those those i mean i have a passing acquaintance with most of it but i mean those, those are the three bits that i have a good 
good to academic level knowledge on. Anyway, so this particular bit, right? So we're talking about a book of Aristotle's called The Metaphysics, which is where he's talking about kind of first principles and sort of fundamental uh, questions of that nature, the sort of things that are studied um, uh, by uh, no science in particular, no special science in particular, right? Common to all special sciences. Um, and um, in book four, um, there's this um, section which really like, um, I guess, uh, chapters three to six or something, three to eight maybe, um, where, as you say, he, he is talking about the law of non-contradiction, which he describes as the firmest of all principles, um, and he um, uh, introduces the idea of various uh, opponents, among them Protagoras, who's a sophist, um, Heraclitus, um, Anaxagoras, and a couple of others, Democritus, whatever, a bunch of other people. And Aristotle was famously uncharitable to his opponents, so he gives these really um, terrible uh, renditions of what they say. So he says that Protagoras, for instance, Protagoras, who was a kind of relativist, who, who's um, famous for saying things like, uh, man is the measure of all things. So Aristotle takes that to mean something like, uh, well, he's saying that you know, truth is completely relative, right? So something might be true for me, but it's not true for you. And then Protagoras is like, kind of committed to the idea that it's both true and not true, right? Because it's true for me and not true for you. Now, Protagoras is a relativist, right? That's true. But whether he's committed to the law of non-contradiction not being true for that reason is very dubitable. Anyway, or Heraclitus says everything is in flux, right? So, you know, uh, in, in Socrates is both youth and age, right? Because he changes. Um, and Aristotle thinks that that means he's saying it's true that Aristotle, that Socrates is young and it's not true that Socrates is young. Right? It's very uncharitable reading of what Heraclitus is saying. Anyway, so he sets up his opponents like that. Um, and then gives a series of, well, quite complicated arguments. I think there's seven arguments, right? But there's the one long famous one that starts in chapter four, which I think is what you're referring to. So what most, most of the discussion about whether that's a transcendental argument. I'd be very surprised if it was one of the others. But to begin with, he sets it up by saying, there's no direct demonstration, right? To, to ask for a demonstration of, of the firmistable principles is to show want of education, right? Because not everything can be demonstrated. Right. That's Absolutely, I agree. Chapter. That's what I've been arguing. Well, so, but that's to say that they, there's no direct way of proving that the law of non-contradiction is true. What he says then is that, well, we can still give it's an true by the impossibility of contrary. Yes, that's an indirect argument. I just said that before you started. So, well, so uh, he says you can give an, an indirect argument. He says you Correct. can demonstrate indirectly if only you can get your opponent to say something, right? And then Correct. the preceding chapters or whatnot sets out one long argument. And your, your claim is that what happens in that next preceding set of arguments is that he, and I think these are two different things, right? The first being proves it by reductio or impossibility of the contrary. And then the other right. one is saying is making the claim that to even voice the question is to presuppose that it's true. I think those are two different yes. types of, and so they're not the same no, thing. No, they're very they're 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 variations on the same point. Well, I mean, okay, yes, but, you're correct. You're you're correct that that technically speaking, to critique the opponent's attempt to say something, and also pointing out in a separate section that an indirect argument is different from. I mean. Technically, they're literally two different things, but it's a variation on the same form of argument. That's why I was talking about how Gödel's incompleteness theorems are the same form of argument, but they're not the same content of the argument that I'm making. Okay. So, in 
let's take them one at a time. So to take first the idea of showing that the law of non-contradiction is true through a reductio seems to me to be question begging, right? And the reason is that, um, well, a reductio no. or impossible contrary argument. So let me set out my stool and then you can see, okay. I can see where you so a reductio argument is has the following form, right? So it's to say, um, let's imagine we want to prove that P is true. What we would do is assume not P is true for the sake of the argument, and then derive from not P some pair of contradictory propositions, say Q and not Q. And then by deriving the contradiction, we can then infer back that not P must be false. And then we can infer back from that to show that P must be true. And so that's the method of reductio. You assume the contrary and you show that it leads to a contradiction. And then you work backwards to the thing you were trying to prove. But the point and the reason that it's question begging in this context is if your opponent is, if your opponent is actually making the claim, unlike Protagoras or Heraclitus, that there is a contradiction, right, which is what it would mean to say that the law of non-contradiction is false, if your opponent is making a claim that there is a contradiction, to then use a reductio method by showing that um, his view leads to a contradiction hmm. is kind of pointless, right? Because he's admitting that that's his claim. It doesn't follow from his claim. That is his claim. So he obviously doesn't, he wouldn't see that as any reason to reject the view because that is his view. So you're begging the question if you think that showing someone is committed to a contradiction is a reason for them to give up the view. If who thinks that it's true that there's a contradiction so you can't i mean right what, maybe what, Aristotle what you're not argument, right? go ahead sorry that's it sorry I've... there's a lag i'm not i'm not trying to cut you off there's a little bit of lag so when when i think you're done i start talking then i don't realize you're not done so uh go ahead no i am in fact done so crack on. Oh, okay yeah what i would say is that what i think you're missing is that um in normative discourse and in normative argument, you're correct. And um, as I said kind of early on, circular arguments are fallacies. Um, but what's unique here is that at this level of discourse, when we're, we're actually questioning something that's a precondition for language and communication and meaningful discourse itself, like the law of non-contradiction, that's so fundamental that it's a unique situation. At this point, at this level, um, the reductio here is not a typical reductio. It's actually a, it's so fundamental of a reductio that it reduces his, his position to the impossibility of even talking or arguing at all. <clears throat> so it's not, excuse me, it's not like the, um, if you and I were debating, <clears throat> debating the existence of, um, I don't know, cheese on, on the moon, right? Uh, we would maybe send a craft to the moon and investigate, right? And we would have these debates about the evidence and this and that, right? That's not the same thing as when you're at the level of question, <clears throat> questioning logic itself, that's so fundamental and so paradigmatic that, that at that level, I believe questions take on a circularity that's unavoidable. And that's why I was talking early on about coherence theory. So what Aristotle is pointing out here is that even though he's making a variation uh, on one point here, and then it, he's, he's attacking from a different angle over here. It's still the same point. And at this level, I believe reductios, uh, they actually move out of the normal. I mean, they're, they're typically fallacies anyway, but this is at the level of paradigms and preconditions of, of speaking or thinking at all. So you can't, I mean, it is a transcendental argument because it's a reductio uh, against a position that destroys the possibility of logic at all. Um, okay. So I'm 
not see, I'm not following why. So, so, so this is what I noticed in your discussion with Dark Dawkins, where I think what I think you're misunderstanding about my position. I'm not defending him, but my position is that you seem to think that logical arguments always operate in the exact same way or or no matter what question you're talking about anything is proven in the exact same way and i don't think that they are for example the way that we would go about proving a, a really complex math problem is very different although not totally unrelated but very different from the way that we would go about proving something that say relates to empirical science right um, so there's different ways to prove different things. And what I think the, the, mis the miscommunication we're having is that we believe that at the level of paradigmatic questions, the kinds of questions that Thomas Kuhn raised about science operating on the basis of paradigms. I'm not saying, by the way, that Kuhn is right about everything, but he's right about pointing out that ultimately science rests on different paradigms. Um, when, you, when you're at that level, things don't operate the same way. Right. And that's why Gerdell is useful in this regard, because Bertrand Russell kind of had the view that you have that like, well, we can just logically show maybe that uh, any anything in in a set is is uh, logically axiomatic and follows from from the first steps. And Gerdell shows that, no, ultimately, the set has to appeal outside of itself. It becomes circular at a certain point. And we're saying the same thing about logical claims that this when you question the law of non-contradiction or the laws of logic themselves, this is not just any normal kind of norm of discourse. This is a metalogical question. So it enters into another sphere of when you doubt or go against those things, it's totally destructive to the possibility of knowledge at all. So it's not a oh. typical reductio at that level. So, okay. So, um, uh, so, so first of all, I'm not sure why, I mean, I'm not sure what you mean then when you say that it's a reductio argument, because that's a reductio argument. Um, so if it's got a different form. Yeah, it's but a it's a reductio argument. at the level of paradigms, which is stronger than and much more devastating than a reductio at the level of debating, you know, whether there's cheese on the moon or debating whether, you know, I have a better inter internet connection to you or de de debating the kind of normative day-to-day -day empirical stuff is not of the same level as when you're debating the possibility of logic itself, right? Don't you think that that a, a something like that is different than, the, even though they could be related, they're different questions. Like if I say, I don't believe in, I don't know, um, uh, let me, let's take something that's kind of like a scientific thing that most, like I don't believe that there's extraterrestrial life, okay? In my worldview, I don't believe that. And I, I actually don't believe in aliens, right? That's a different kind of claim than if I were to say there are no laws of logic and they can't be justified. Now, I believe that we could argue and prove perhaps either of these questions, but they're two different types of questions. And so I think, again, the mistake here is, is trying to think that everything is proved in the same way. It's not. The way that we go about doing daily discourse or science is, is not going to be proven in the same way that we would prove or justify meta level questions. And the reason for that is because at the meta level, things operate in a different way and they're much more devastating if we deny them or if we doubt them. If I doubt the existence of the external world and I really don't believe that there's an external world, if I if I follow through with that, it's there's gonna be heavy consequences for my life, right? Like I might think that everything is a mental projection in my life and so I can go around and I can loot and burn and I can become the God Emperor, but I'm probably going to have some severe consequences when I find out that the rest of the world doesn't share that view, right? 
So yeah. that's a okay. fundamental kind of question, right? That, that's different than if I were to ask the question of, do I actually live next door to Little Wayne? Like the dude over there kind of looks like Little Wayne, but I don't think that it is. I deny I live next to Little Wayne. Right? So, so see how they're, they're, they're questions that could be resolved through logic and debate, but they're going to be proven in different ways because the nature of what's under discussion itself is different. And this is the key point I want to make. When you're talking about abstract entities, uh, logical entities, number theory, any of that kind of stuff, uh, philosophical concepts, preconditions, the way that they're going to be discussed and justified and proven, if one accepts that they can be proven, and I do, then the, the way that they're justified and proven is going to be different than the types of things that are not abstract, conceptual, invariant, and immaterial. Okay, so let me try and... I've got three things in my mind I want to say, let me can remember them. Um, so the first one, I think, is that... Um, I agree that not everything is proven in the same way. I'm not um, a, I was um, for this even like an epistemological monist or something, right? I don't think that there's only one way to find out how things okay. how things are. I think that um, the way you go about proving um, a mathematical theorem is different to the way that you go about justifying, say, a historical claim or something. Right. You know, it's two different claim, and there are other ones as well. The word, the way I know that um, I'm in pain is different from the way that I prove a mathematical theorem as well. So that I'm not at all wedded to the idea that everything, all knowledge is obtained in the same way, just to clear that up. Um, I think that um, I'm curious as the idea that Aristotle could have followed what could have said the same thing that you're saying, partly because. Um, so you're, you were saying that if you were calling into question anything so fundamental as the law of logic, then what happens when you entertain the idea that it might not be true is that you're plunged into some kind of uh, situation and something a bit like what Kant was saying would happen if you didn't think of the world spatio-temporally or something. Maybe right? it would just sort of break down. But right. contrary to that, in on interpretation, um, book nine, Aristotle um, ends up saying that he thinks that the law of excluded middle is false for future contingents. And so... I mean, one of the three paradigmatic classical laws, these things everyone associates with Aristotle, he argued against one of them. Um, he didn't think that his worldview had fallen to pieces as a result of that. So it seems curious to me why he would think that questioning the law of non-contradiction would have that consequence if questioning the law of excluded middle patent didn't. Um, right. Okay, so, and the final thing by, I think... By the way, um, can I add real quick about Aristotle? Um, I have a severe critique of Aristotle. So I, I don't want to give the impression that I'm an Aristotelian. Oh, the only reason I brought in what I think is a transcendental argument from metaphysics is just to talk about the history of it. Um, I'm not trying to defend Aristotle, and I have plenty of critiques of Aristotle. Go ahead. Sorry. And I, I don't. I don't think you are an Aristotelian, um, or you would be a Thomist instead of an Orthodox uh, theologian. Um, but look, I think that that's think about this a little bit more right so um on your view of what aristotle is saying so let's just pretend that he didn't say that in on interpretation because that's a massive exegetical issue for your view it seems to me um but let's say his uh, argument and let's say somehow that um, well actually put, why would that be why would why would that be a problem for my view well because if I mean, the view is calling in laws leads your uh, worldview to sort of crumble and become incoherent, then it, it wouldn't make sense with him calling into question the law of excluded middle, which is just as much of a logical law as the law of non-contradiction. Yeah, but the fact that Aristotle wasn't consistent really doesn't have anything to do with whether the, tr the positions are truth or, or, 
true or false or not. Okay, and in so uh, in the posterior analytics, which is not actually about logic as such, but it's about scientific method for Aristotle. And I don't have the reference off the top of my head, but there's a bit where, um, and I am happy to produce this at some point if needs be. Um, but he points out there's so there's this interesting passage where he says that um, the uh, the principle of non-contradiction is not presupposed by the, the theory of the categorical syllogism, right? And he gives an example and says, um, for if it were effectively, I'm paraphrasing, but let's imagine that all the A's are B and some A's are not B, then it would still follow that um, from all B's are C, that some A's are C, right? So he's essentially saying that the, the, the form Barbara, which is the, the main one in the categorical syllogism, the one onto which all of the others can be reduced, would still be valid even if there were a contradiction. So what that shows you is not that he thinks that there are contradictions, he thinks there couldn't be contradictions, right? But he doesn't think that the system of the categorical syllogism requires there to be no contradictions. The inferences would still be valid even if there were contradictions. So he's explicitly saying that logic doesn't presuppose the law of non-contradiction there. And I find that that is again another exegetical question for you. If you're saying you're not... that he's logic law of non-contradiction how do you reconcile him explicitly saying that it doesn't right so this is the reason why i, I don't i don't i don't, I don't reconcile him I, because because ultimately uh like if you listen to my critiques of aristotle i would be glad to point out to you that um you know for example he's extremely inconsistent when he talks about the fact that there's one unmoved mover and then he talks about all the the sphere the celestial spheres of the heavens each having their own unmoved mover uh, so, I mean, Aristotle contradicts himself all the time, actually, in my view. I was just pointing out that he's the first person that we we can see that makes this form of an argument. And it doesn't matter if he doesn't make that form of an argument elsewhere and contradicts himself. Well, okay, so fair enough. So I'm pointing out other areas where he seems to be saying stuff that's difficult to... Okay, I mean, I, I, can, I, wouldn't, have a, I wouldn't even have a problem granting you that. You're probably more of a, an Aristotelian scholar than I am. I mean, I had maybe two or three grad classes on him. I'm not... I'm not an Aristotle expert, and I'm, I'm sure that uh, you would have more contradictions that you could point out. But I just think in that section, and I think it is a section four um, that's typically pointed to where people think that he does make, that if you look at just the form of the argument, it seems to be uh, a reductio that is a transcendental argument because of it's a question of the law of non-contradiction. Um, if he's inconsistent with that elsewhere, I don't, I don't have any problem admitting that. Yeah, okay, so, but then, you know, uh, <laughs> And I didn't expect us to talk about Aristotle this much, so maybe we can pause this after my follow-up. But last thing I want to say about Aristotle is I think what's going on in section four is that he ends up saying, uh, if only I could get my opponent to say something, I could trap him, right? Um, right. And then he says, he's a long time saying, well, as long as he doesn't, you know, do some crafty tricks like saying something but not really meaning anything by it. And obviously you can't right. also say something and mean two things by it at the same time, right? You know, if you say right. this is a bank, the money bank and it's not a bank as in a river bank that doesn't yeah count. you can't play word games right it's like say something unequivocally right like i am a man right and not mean any other things by it and he thinks well as soon as i can get someone to make that type of claim right they're making a stand on it they're saying this is true and not right. also false right when you do mm -hmm. that um you're then therefore you know, the idea is uh that that type of opponent can't think that the law of non-contradiction is false right but the thing is it's a bad argument because 
you could believe that, say, the liar sentence is both true and false, but think that the sentence, I am a man, is true and not false. So simply getting me to say one sentence doesn't get me to commit to the non-contradiction being true. I could still think there is a contradiction. No, actually, I, I, I would disagree. I disagree with that. But even if I grant you this, ultimately, it's not germane to my overall argument. But uh, I actually don't, I don't think that's true. I think that, again, um, it's it's like if, first of all, I, I believe that there's a distinction between a contradiction and a paradox. And this is debated in logic. Uh, so it's not always clear when that is the case. Uh, I don't think that every because the liar's paradox is often compared to Gödel's incompleteness theorems for the circularity, um, and there's debate over whether that is a contradiction or not. But I personally do think that there, are, that and even Bertrand Russell agrees that a paradox is not equivalent to a contradiction. As just a famous logician, I'm not saying it's true because Bertrand Russell said it. I'm not making an appeal to authority. I mean, as you know, these are kind of debated issues. But um, I do think that in the case again of because of the uh, that even if you were to make a sentence that was a liar's paradox, uh, I believe you absolutely still would be assuming logical regularity in, re in relationship to language. So in this regard, I would say, if you look at people like um, Carl uh, Otto Appel, um, he's one of the key figures who actually does apply transcendental argumentation to, to show how sentences, um, uh, singulars and plurals uh, in sentence structure, grammar itself actually presupposes quite a bit of logic um, I think those arguments are convincing, so that's why I wouldn't buy what you're saying. Yeah, okay, so I mean... Um... Now, Aristotle wasn't aware of that. I'll grant you that Aristotle probably wasn't thinking about what's presupposed in... I mean, he might have, because he does discuss like what's what's categories that are necessary for language and these kinds of things, but... Um, you know, again, I, you know, I, I don't even, again, even if Aristotle has no transcendental argument, like how does this, what does this have, what is this, what does this prove? Is it just a conversation well, I mean, or argument? I think that the type of argument that you're saying is a transcendental argument uh, right. doesn't really. I think when you look at, well, I think when you look at Aristotle, what you find when you look in detail at it is that there isn't a, a transcendental argument. There's actually um, a, a, not a very good argument, right? And that, um, you know. Do you think that it's I possible think not, to make, do you think that it's possible to make a sentence, even if it's, even if your sentence is the liar's paradox? and not assume all of the logical laws that are involved in grammar and, and, and sentence structure? Uh, yeah, I don't think that, I don't think that English language necessarily presupposes classical logic, no. So you don't think that so I think a I... sentence, you don't think that predicating in a sentence, uh, for example, deals with the one and the many, which is a basic philosophic question about singulars and particulars and versus uh, categories and classes of things. Even if you don't believe in metaphysics, obviously sentences are based on some form of logical structure or else they're nonsense. Uh, right, but I'm just, I mean, I'm saying I don't think that classical logic is presupposed by just English language. I think you'd have to do quite it a lot of work matter to what show language. me. You can, pick, you can pick, okay, well, you can make it Greek. I'm not disputing English. The point is the language, any language that has structure and all known languages have some basic transcendental categories of structures of nouns and pronouns and particulars and, and subjects and objects and so forth. Uh, I mean, that's that's common to all language. That's meaningful. Yeah, I'm quite um, Platonist about that and say that, you know, that um, when one grasps 
um, abstract truths that are expressed through propositions, um, and you know, we we use sentences of language to convey these to one another. That what's going on there is that we're connecting to um, abstract structures that are not physical. I'm happy with that. And it doesn't seem like I need to believe in orthodox Christianity though to get there. So, okay, well, there's um, ancillary arguments to get to that point, but I'm just making the point that it doesn't matter what language you choose, if the language is meaningful, if it's coherent, and if it conveys meaning, and if you're admitting that there are conceptual uh, realities, whatever you can see them to be, that are tapped into um, when we make linguistic expressions that are meaningful, then I think you would have to grant that those uh, sentence structures, all languages have these basic fundamental patterns. It's all based on pattern recognitions, uh, uh, semiotics that's coherent. Uh, and that absolutely presupposes logic. And I would say if you doubt that, I think that the easiest thing to show that is Husserl's logical investigations where he shows that the scientific method itself can't be done without presupposing abstract logical categories. Okay, so um, I think we could keep talking about the law of non-contradiction, or at least I could anyway, and maybe we should move back towards the idea that you're advancing an argument that uh, the conclusion of which is that God exists and specifically your version of God. Now, let's say, right. let me play along for a bit. So I agree that, let's say I agree that materialism doesn't cut it, right? That um, naive empiricism mm -hmm. doesn't cut um, uh, But I don't believe in God though, right? I can believe that I have some rational faculty that engages with uh, abstract objects as a Platonist does. I feel like I can use more or less the same thing to talk about moral realism, so I don't need God for that. Um, I, as I explained, I think that we're in the same boat when it comes to um, the problem of induction. So I, I'm really wondering why why I should be persuaded to move over to your camp. Uh, sell it to me. Right. Well, okay. So so I'll say right now. Like so, uh, uh, I have a lot of critiques of Plato as well, um, and and so I'm very and I was even for a while back in my 20s kind of tempted with Platonism and Neoplatonism. So I understand the draw to that, but I think that if you look at the uh, ways that Platonism attempts to, and I'm not saying you're Platonist, I'm just saying that the way I would critique that kind of a response is that um, the metaphysics of Platonism doesn't work. You have a lot of these problems of like uh, the uh, external world uh, and the internal world of the mind and the mind somehow tapping into an external immaterial realm of forms. Um, the problem there, of course, is the duality. How does How do we get this invariant unchanging abstract realm to relate to a world of flux and change. So that is a fundamental problem to Plato. I'm not making the third man argument. I'm making a different argument. Platonism ultimately is monistic in the sense that the the one that Plato attributes all reality ultimately to the monad, uh, it, it's, uh, it's kind of a big black hole that subsumes all distinctions. So bas basically, I think if you're pretty consistent with Platonism, it would kind of lead you down the path of Far Eastern philosophy for Eastern thought where where this realm kind of ultimately would have to be illusory or a dream state. And that's why Plato kind of had to fall back on stupid things like reincarnation to justify how we have uh, knowledge of the forms of things. So ultimately, I would say the impersonalist absolute that Plato has is problematic because when we think about numbers and we think about abstract categories and all these things that the Platonist is correct to want to see is not just material. The problem in Platonism then becomes that the way that they conceive of those things is just kind of arbitrary things that just exist in some other realm that has no connection to this realm. So I don't think Platonism is actually a better answer. And actually in Orthodox theology, we have 
very precise explanations from St. Maximus the Confessor on how mathematical qualities or quantities, uh, uh, mathematical categories, essences, these kinds of things that Platonism has, um, we don't identify them with the one as Plato does. We actually believe that that they're kind of mental in the mind of God, you could say. So it's you could say maybe it's a modified form of Neoplatonism in Orthodox Christianity with what we call the the logi or the principles or the archetypes of the essences of things. We think that that's a better way to ground metaphysics, uh, how to explain that logical categories and meaningful statements apply to objects in the world is because ultimately they're grounded in the eternal mind of God. So that's a very, it's like a radical paradigm shift of how you view metaphysics if you accept the orthodox metaphysic. And I think it provides a better justification for the things that you're correct to point to as things that we would need if we don't want materialism, right? So if materialism is problematic and we step in that direction of wanting to have um, archetypes or wanting to have essences for things or wanting to have these kind of categories for math objects that don't seem to just be identifiable with the, the material world, Mandelbrot sets, these kind of very deep things, right? Um, Platonism is a window into how there might be other possibilities, but Platonism itself still has some very basic uh, fundamental problems in both its ethic, its metaphysics, and its, its epistemology. Ultimately, I'll just sum it up by simply saying I think it reduces to monism. So it doesn't, and solipsism, kind of the same way Kantianism does. So I don't think it really provides a basis for um, objects to have real distinctions. Uh, and so ultimately, that's why Plato kind of assigns this world to like a dream state. Yeah, okay. So uh, just to clarify, when I say I'm sympathetic towards Platonism, I'm not saying Platonism with a big P, um, views of Plato himself, right? Not mm -hmm. not particularly keen on those views. Um, what I'm saying is uh, I'm talking about Platonism with a small P, right, which um, goes back to the work of Gottlob Frege um, in his paper called Thought, which maybe you're uh, aware of that. Um, uh, so there the idea is uh, look, propositions, right? They um, uh, they can't be either thoughts in our minds, or um, uh, or can they be physical things, right? Um, so there has to be a third category of thing. And some people say that's a transcendental argument. Interestingly, I'm not so sure, but I think it's a good argument one way or the other. Um, mm -hmm. So the idea is something like, let's say we both think about the same thing, right? Pythagoras's theorem. Um, what does it mean to say that we've got the same thing in mind? Well, it doesn't mean that you and I literally, a uh, part of each of our minds is kind of overlapping, that we literally have one right. thought between minds, right? And in such an idea, it's sort of metaphysically impossible. My mm -hmm. thoughts, the actual inner life that I have, is metaphysically private. There's nothing you can do. You could sort of understand what I'm saying or whatever, but my in a mental life is my own. As everyone discovers one day when they realize as a small child that they can swear at people in their heads and other people can't hear it. Right? From that point onwards, the metaphysical privacy of your own mind is, is sort of evident to you. Um, but obviously it's not that we share physical matter when we think of the same thing either. It's not that I rip out a bit of my brain and squish it through your ear so that we uh, literally shared the same thing. So what, what's going on there, right? The answer has to be that it's something uh, the content of our thought is not itself mental or physical. Um, but the, um, the argument that, or the position that you sketched there is a version of divine conceptualism, which says that abstract objects, such as propositions or numbers or logical laws or whatever, are ideas in the mind of God. 
Now, for that to work, right, if God thinks about the, if what the Pythagorean is, is a thought of God, then for me and God, you know, for me and you to both think the same thing, or for, actually just forget that, just for me to think it, um, I have to, what am I doing? Share, is my mind melding with God's? I don't think that's what you're saying, right? So it's not literally that two thoughts go, uh, go mix together. That's not what's going on, right? What's happening is that I've got a thought, which is the same content as God's thought. I mean, the only way to make sense of this, it seems to me, is for the thought, for God's thought to be distinguished from the content of God's thought, right? What God is doing is thinking about the Pythagorean theorem, maybe. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's what I'm thinking about. And then we both have that in common, but that just means that the Pythagorean theorem yeah, isn't. No, really actually, the, you're, you're on to some really great questions. And in fact, I would say that uh, the German idealists uh, and, and people in that school, they were kind of stepping in the right direction for responding to questions that, you know, Hume and, and Kant were dealing with. Um, but I would say that, and it's it's a very, it's kind of, it's kind of complex at this point, but this is why I wrote an essay called Numbers Prove God, where I try to flesh this out more, which it's kind of a, I'm not bragging, but I'm saying it's kind of a famous essay that I did. Um, and it, it's responding to the questions that you're asking. And without getting too difficult into orthodox theology, one of the things that makes us distinct from Thomism is that we believe in the essence energy distinction. And as I said earlier, we, we believe in the conception of the logi, which are the principles or essences or archetypes behind things. And that would also apply to numbers too. Numbers are not identified to the mind of God, but they are, when we have a thought or something like that, we believe in analogy, right? There is, in our view, an analogia between the conceptions in our mind and what we're calling the divine concepts or the divine thoughts. But we don't think that they're identical to the divine essence, and that's how it's distinct from Platonism. Because in Platonism, all the forms, and even in, in the Western ex- acceptance of what are called divine exemplars, the exemplarism of Augustine, uh, all the way up to Aquinas, they actually identify all the essences or the exemplars of things with the es- with the essence of God, which we think is absurd. That's one of the main reasons that we're not Thomists and why we think the Thomistic epistemology doesn't work and why I think that somebody like Maximus the Confessor uh, is a much better theologian for this issue um, than Thomas Aquinas. And so, um, simply put, he answers your question. I have essays on that. Um, but I would say that you're absolutely right. Uh, you're on the right path for what I would the way I would respond to that. And I would say that we are not having literally the same melded um, concept as God has, but we do say with the logi or the essences of things that there are uh, there, there's a, they have a created aspect to them and they have an uncreated aspect to them. And one, one of the things that's unique to Orthodox Christology and anthropology is that we actually do believe that the individual can eventually have a real union with God that does not destroy uh his particularity or his creaturehood so we don't it's not like a mystical like we're absorbed into the divine or something like that we always retain our creaturehood but we do believe in a real participation in divinity which ultimately is the grounding we would say for the conceptual things that you're talking about so i mean that's kind of a long-winded explanation but uh, basically saint maximus is who i would say answers your question because he goes into depth about the essence energy distinction um and david bradshaw is a famous uh philosopher uh at uk he has a book called aristotle east and west that you would really like that specifically deals with what we're talking about here okay so let me let me try a different uh different angle on this because um i mean i'm not seeing really there's a clear um there's anything clear going on there 
Um, well, I mean, I, I, I can I can launch into an explanation of the logi and how you know we see exemplars, uh, you know, as uncreated energies or something like that. But uh, I mean, I, I'm just worried that the nature of the audience that we have it might be a little out of step with what people expected. I don't mind doing it, but I mean, I'm just saying that yeah, uh, it's like I think Alex, uh, you know, is saying how long do we want to go? I mean, I, I I'm fine to keep I, whatever you right guys. Now you're do, Right now, you're about 83 minutes. Um, I think we had planned this for about 90. I don't know if we have time to do Q&A or if, or if you gentlemen want to or if Kyle wants well, to. Well, you know, um, why don't we do a separate, we could do a separate episode maybe where we. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking, you know, I, I'm I'm probably going to do some kind this of episode great. later on. Not, not today or if it is much later tonight. I have something to do right after this. I have to go to Atheist Edge and do a presentation. Um, and I know that obviously Dr. Malpass is with him living far, far away. You know, he's not going to be able to probably do that. We're going to have to schedule things around him if there's ever going to be a part two on this. However, um, I, I do. There's so many things that I want to address in, in your in your in your discussions there this probably isn't the time to do that i want to do that later uh, jay you can probably join us for that i know there's people in the live chat that more than want to as well um maybe if i could just ask one question or two if that's okay do you have time for that okay um you, you you're discussing a tag argument so is there possibly a way you can put it in a more structured syllogistic form um you know i just go from the premises to the conclusion real quick is there is there some form of that 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 we can analyze that way is that okay yeah, let me say it like this. Um, uh, all all philosophical systems or worldviews have uh, fundamental assumptions that relate to metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics, right? I would say that when we, so that's my first premise, um, when we examine those presuppositions or, or, or categories or possibilities of experience, et cetera, that make up those, those three branches of philosophy, we encounter a host of things that are assumed, things like the existence of the self, um, the Kant's categories that like he was mentioning earlier, um, uh, abstract conceptual entities, meaning behind sentences, uh, the existence of the external world, the existence of the past. This is another one that people forget. Um, transcendental unity of apperception is one you could use that Kant talked about. Um, that objects have identity over time is another one. Um, so, you know, you can start listing these types of really kind of big level questions that seem to be necessary for the possibility of knowledge or discourse or ethics or whatever. And I'm so the final conclusion after we look at those is that the way to give a meta level justification and explanation for the coherence of those things is the existence of the orthodox view, the existence of God in the orthodox view. Alex, you want to respond to that if you can? Uh, I think. By the way, before he goes, before he goes, before he goes, I will say we were getting to the meat of. I mean, I, I do want to go into the the if we ground as the essence of things in, in divine conceptualism or the mind of God, that's mm -hmm. kind of where the argument hinges. He's absolutely right, and I do want to go into that. It's just that I think that'll require yeah, no, a whole I, other. I, I would love to talk about, uh, you know, uh, monistic idealism and conceptualism and things existing in the mind of God. Because I thought, and I and I mentioned this to Dr. Malpass prior to coming on, so I might as well mention to you, because I thought you were running in this argument way back when, and maybe I got you confused with somebody else. But was it you that was arguing the, something along the lines, and I'm probably going to butcher this, so please forgive me, but it was something along the lines that the laws of logic only exist in, in minds. It doesn't have any abstract just abstract doesn't have any real concrete formless i guess if you're a platonist but 
since they only exist in minds, if people didn't exist, then they still must exist in some form of a mind, which would be the mind of God. Did, was that you running that kind of argument, or was that somebody else? Uh, I wouldn't make that argument. I think uh, when I was debating J, when I was debating JF, he kind of thought that's what I was saying, but I wouldn't say I wouldn't frame it that way. No. Okay. Okay. Um, and the, uh, yeah, sure. and, one, and the only last question would be very. Uh, um, Aristotle, from what I recall, argued against law excluded in middle. I don't remember what metaphysics treatise it was, but he was somewhere along the lines of four, seven, whatever. Um, when you say that the laws of logic are somehow fundamental, um, aren't you kind of discounting like all paraconsistent logic and other forms where you have truth gaps and truth gluts and things of, of uh, different types of logic, which just don't use those types of, of laws of logic? I, and I really defer, I refer to call them principles of logic. But do you not treat them as so absolute that they must exist in all times? No, I will, I will actually grant you this point, and I will agree that there are, there are other uh, formal and conceptual systems that you could uh, come up with. Like, for example, um, if you, if we look at it in the mathematics category, you know, if you look at um, the fact that there are multiple infinities, different types of infinities, I think Cantor mm -hmm. shows that mathematically. So I, I will agree with you on that point that. Um, but, but in my view, like mathematics or logic is really just one angle on God. So I don't hinge everything on like everything has to conform to uh, Aristotelian logic or has to conform to like uh, the Pythagorean notion in the mind of God. I mean, I do think those things are telling us truths, but I don't think any of them are um, reductionist or, or all encompassing or or even necessarily that uh, this discounts the possibilities of um, other types of systems being being possible. I just think that if you look at um there's a modern philosopher who wrote a famous book a few years ago called alvin noe uh, and i did a one of my grad essays on him the reason he's relevant is because he wrote a book called action and perception and what he tries to demonstrate in that short book is that and it, it was like philosophy book of the year so it's not a nobody what he tries to demonstrate in that is that for us in this world at least we know that there are certain things that are paradigmatic or absolutely necessary for us as humans insofar as we are constituted in this world that we for example learn things from beginning middle to end typically right doesn't mean you can't watch a, a tarantino movie where it skips around it's just that typically speaking our lives our uh, sentence structures conversations everything seems to have a beginning middle end structure um and noe looks at a lot of actually scientific experiments that demonstrates that humans don't just receive things as sense uh, impressions but that they, there's also an active kind of symbiotic relationship between even empirical sense data. It's what he I think he demonstrates in that book. So the point of all that was to just say that I can admit to you that there are there might be abstract systems that function in other ways, maybe another possible world or something like that. But insofar as we know in this world, I think that the normative transcendental argument, I'm not saying the normative that it's it's the same as day-to-day -day logical arguments. I think it's paradigmatic, but the argument I'm making is true in a paradigmatic sense for our experience in this world okay well yeah i, I agree with you there but uh dr Miles, you've got a lot you want to touch on by the way you had a video i think once did you talk about infinities whether actual infinities exist is that something you did me yeah i believe okay no uh well I, no i think it was dr malpass that had that. i know it wasn't oh, okay. kyle kyle you didn't do a video on on if, if actual infinities okay. exist, right somebody here did um yeah, <laughs> I know somebody did. Uh, but anyways, you want to touch on that, Alex? I, I mean, do, do you agree that they're... Um, and, but wait, you know, before I ask Alex, maybe do a follow-up if you don't mind, uh, because I think Alex can touch on this. You said something that intrigued me. You said 
something along the lines that they may not be the same in other possible worlds, but isn't metaphysical necessity something that must exist in all possible worlds? So if, if the laws of logic are something that are metaphysical necessities, as I thought what your original argument was, wouldn't that not be the case in all possible worlds? Or am I, am I messing up modal logic there? Are you asking me? Either of you. Either, either or. Alex? Well, uh, um, it's, I mean, it depends what metaphysical modality means in that context. But I mean, uh, you know, there are going to be, um, you might say that there are logically possible worlds where some metaphysical impossibilities are exist, right? So maybe it's metaphysically impossible for um, uh, you, you and I to be the same person or something, right? But it doesn't necessarily seem to, that there's a contradiction involved in saying that we're the same person, right? Not a straightforward. Yeah, not a lot and of I mean, if that's the case, I'm just trying theory. to find an illustration. So that wouldn't be an impossible world then? Well, an impossible world would be one where there is a contradiction. So then there's a further right, question but... of whether there in addition to possible worlds. So if you're okay. a paraconsistent logician, you would, your models would quantify over both possible and impossible worlds. And if you're a dialetheist, you would think that the actual world is one of those impossible worlds. So there's a rich landscape of uh, philosophical logic. And so I suppose to come back to the point, um, so there's something that reminds me a bit. So Kant thought that um, we are forced to presuppose that uh, the world is spatio-temporal, right? As one of the preconditions of the intelligibility of experience. But he also thought that we were forced to presuppose that space um, was Newtonian, right? That it was right. um, Euclidean. Right. Nothing about geometry hadn't even been invented yet um, and then it was invented and for a while it was a conceptual possibility that people had that you know you can imagine that the, what the world would be like if it was non-euclidean and then we've accumulated quite a good body of evidence to suggest that the actual world we live in isn't uh, euclidean right it's curved it has some curvature to it specifically around massive bodies and you can actually see the curvature if you do various types of experiment so it's plainly not the case that we um have to structure our experience such that it's Euclidean space-time because we don't, it's not, right? The empirical refutation of Kant's transcendental proof there and something about Jay's insistence that we must presuppose what seems to me classical logical principles strikes me as something similar. I'm not saying we've got empirical refutation of uh, any principles of classical logic but these days the development of non-classical logics uh, in the 20th century is, is like makes the idea that the world might obey non-classical logical laws right. uh, similar so, to uh, you know after we'd invented non-euclidean geometry right it's a conceptual possibility now so it just doesn't right. I don't so, buy the idea yeah so so maybe at the quantum level right uh newtonian physics doesn't hold like it does typically and maybe at the quantum level kant's argument that relies on newtonian space being a certain way is not true i don't have a problem with that because uh on in the day-to-day in -day, most of our lives we still use um, this, the kinds of, of, of equations and the kinds of logic, the kinds of math that's, that build bridges, that build, that build skyscrapers, that build rockets and all that. It's like, so, so the math that we do that does that stuff, the, the Mandelbrot sets that actually do map up to nature, the, the math that we see in nature, that's, that's not done away just because there are, you know, theoretical systems that, that don't utilize those same types of, of structures. 
Um, so my argument is hinging on the known experience that we do have. And, and actually, in many ways, my argument is actually empirical and it is based on a lot of sense experience. So it's uh, I want to be clear that the argument I'm making is not purely an abstract a priori mathematic based argument. I'm making more of a, of a broad scope kind of analysis of different angles and aspects of life. And also, I don't I think that one of the problems when we talk about like the possibilities of other worlds and this kind of stuff and does uh does the the mode of existence or does the the mode of ontology in this world or abstractly have to be consistent across all the other worlds um i think that that assumes that there that the metaphysics or ontology operates in a in a in a singular way i mean there could be there could be situations where, where metaphysics is different right i mean we don't really conceptually understand how there might be different types of infinities if in fact there are but perhaps they can be shown mathematically we don't necessarily know how there might be higher dimensions but geometry, tesseracts, these kinds of mathematical objects seem to suggest that they do exist, right? Quasi-crystals suggest that there are higher and lower dimensions. So we don't know exactly how it is, but we can have an idea of those things. I'm going to have to like yeah. cut you off. We're, we're going way over here. Um, I have to get this one last question. Is this from one of my, my all-time favorite people that I adore? If I don't, she's never going to talk to me again, and I don't want that. Um, but our dear friend, Helena Handbasket, um, she said she asked she wants me to ask Jay what do you think can't be true if we don't she says what do you think can't be true if we don't presuppose God is her question what can't what be true I, if we don't presuppose God be true and well again I think uh, um, that's so the inverse of that would be what be what would be true if God does exist what can't be true if God doesn't exist I don't really understand the question but I guess I would just say uh, I'm, I'm, I do think the argument is logically necessary that I'm making. Now, it doesn't mean that, that you're convinced of it, but I think that it is logically a consistent. So you're positing necessity. God as a metaphysical necessity? Yeah. Okay. Um, so what, what would be the case? You want to, Kyle? Oh, I was just going to read these uh, these super chats real quick, mm -hmm. um, unless you were had more. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, okay. Uh, Matthew Walker says, um, this is God of the gift for philosophy. And then artist or artist and Tony, just with supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, that is artist and Tony for you. That's and as right. always, Steve. Thank you. Oh, am I muted? No, I'm not muted. Uh, Are we wrapping up? Sarah, uh, Sarah chat says, "How does God justify his beliefs?" Um, we'll have to save that for, for part two because um, yep. I know it's getting late for uh, Dr. Malpass. Steve's got a Steve. You want to plug where you're going? You're going real quick. Yeah, I'm going to be going over to the Atheist Ed channel. Um, that's going to be over with TJ Tuttle, and I don't know if Jim's going to be there. Jim Hall, he might. Um, we had some technical difficulties because uh, TJ, I guess, turned out to be a luddite and couldn't figure out modern technology. But we think we solved the problem, so I'll be on there and I'll be doing a PT presentation on our favorite subject of all time: atheism, agnosticism. You know, you love it. You know, you want to check it out. Um, I think we're doing it. I think we're doing it for Pacific, but I, I could be wrong. It could be sooner. So. Stay tuned. Okay. And I want to thank uh, Jay and uh, Dr. Malpass for joining us. Um, we will definitely set a, a part two. You can check out their links uh, for their various um, things that they got going on. I know Dr. Malpass's blog and um, Jay Dyer's book and his website, Jay's Analysis, is linked below. So make sure you check that out. And um, thanks again, gentlemen. This was a great conversation. And we'll be back tomorrow at 9 p.m. Eastern Thank with you. Uh, myself and Shannon.
Thank you.